teaching today looks a lot like the way great teaching has always looked. In certain ways, it's grounded in things like love. Uh, it's grounded in relationships. Um, it's grounded in a sense of authenticity. And but I think those things ring even more true for students now, maybe than they did in the past. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the... Los Angeles area. Sorry, I had to think about that for a second. Like, where do I teach? Los Angeles area, Pasadena, California, specifically. And this is year 19 in the classroom for me, 19 years deep. And this here, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Now, for those of you who are relatively new to all of the above, our full episodes of which this is one of them, are, you know, hour long or so. And we have look at multiple headlines and we have a super dope guest in the building and some shout outs at the end. You know, great stuff, great stuff, if I can say so myself. But then in between those full episodes, we have passing periods, which are audio only, just Jeff and myself checking in with each other like you would during the passing period. So if you're relatively new to all of the above, you might have checked out a couple passing periods recently, and this might be your first full episode. So just so you know, these are video format available on YouTube, and you could also watch the video through the Spotify streaming app, and of course, obviously, also available as a podcast. So shout out to y'all for being here with us. We appreciate y'all. And Jeff, man, it's been a minute since we had one of these full episodes. In fact, it feels weird to give the full intro like that. I'm like trying to remember what I normally say and all that good stuff. I do notice that our studio backgrounds are a little different today. Jeff, what's up with that? Yes, indeed, man. Well, uh, I am on the road coming to you live. Uh, actually, not not live by the time you're watching this, but coming to you recorded uh, from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, from my childhood home, literally from the bedroom that I slept in with my two brothers uh, in uh, in the home that I grew up in. Wow. And I am here, man. Well, it's actually a pretty like intense time because I'm here uh, emptying the house and um, putting it up for sale. So um there's a, there's a lot going on, but uh, honestly, I'm appreciating the, uh, the break right now to do a little bit of uh, recording here with you and um, conversation with our amazing guests to come and uh, a chance to, you know, do something that feels a little more routine and a little less like a, you know, a emotionally intense journey uh, for, for yeah. a stretch of time here. Yeah, nah, absolutely. That's deep. That's deep. And for folks who are listening and, and not watching the video... Click on the little link underneath, underneath the uh, well, in the podcast notes or whatever to take you over to the YouTube. We could definitely appreciate a quick thumbs up, and also you can see uh, Jeffrey's uh, childhood bedroom, or at least the one corner of it that's not stacked with moving boxes and and all Literally. that, all that stuff. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The the bunk beds that I slept on growing up are are no longer in the house, but uh, <laughs> this bunk is about beds. the only corner I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. Here we are, full episode, obviously a lot going on, always a lot going on, but we have a dope guest in the building, a, de a guest that really, that takes me back, to be honest, takes me back to when I was just a fledgling little uh, teacher in training. So Jeff, who do we have in the building with us today? Mm, fledgling, I'm, I'm just, that was a very vivid uh, <laughs> language right there, Fle fledgling Dr. Rustin. Um, 
Yeah, so Manuel, um, this episode has been a while in the making. We've been uh, we've been dropping some hints. We had to reschedule a couple of times with this guest because he's, uh, frankly, he's big stuff. He is uh, a high-profile uh, individual nowadays, and we are just deeply honored uh, to have on the show with us today, Manuel, a fantastic teacher, an award-winning teacher, a California State Teacher of the Year and nominee for National Teacher of the Year, 2023 National Teacher of the Year, none other than Jason Torres Rangel, um, who is a high school English teacher at Theodore Roosevelt High School in Boyle Heights um, on the east side of Los Angeles. And uh, in addition, uh, Jason is not only all of those wonderful things, but is former classmate of none other than uh, Dr. Manuel Rustin and yours truly, Jeffrey Garrett, of the 2004 uh, class at the Harvard Graduate School of Education Teacher Education Program. Uh, so it's also a little bit of a mini reunion here, Manuel, but uh, just deeply honored to have Jason on. We're going to be talking a bunch about um, good teaching and what it looks like and what the kind of implications are for good teaching in this particularly uh, charged environment right now, uh, full of times of controversy and right-wing insanity and uh, just existential challenge for our profession. And so Jason's going to come uh, bless us with some, some wisdom on those topics today. Yeah, sounds dope. I've not seen Jason in a while. Well, actually, I mean, I randomly saw him at the Teacher of the Year luncheon um, for LA County. But like in terms of actually been able to have a conversa conversation with him, it's been a minute. So very much looking forward to that. Um, and of course, we have a Do Now coming up with a look at multiple headlines in the world of education. And that'll be coming up next. So stay tuned. All right, folks, now, Y'all know that a solid classroom lesson plan often begins with a warm-up or a do now, and that's what we're jumping into right now. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now today? Well, Manuel, today, uh, frankly, it's my favorite way that we do the do now segment. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, Manuel, but, uh, you know, we'll just, <laughs> since it's just you and I here in the teacher's lounge, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, we got a lexicon for everybody today. We're going to get into some key vocabulary, talk about those terms and concepts, uh, which are essential to understanding for today's mm. episode. Ah, okay. Lexicon. Let's build up this vocabulary. Jeff? The first term for today is pinch. Mm, pinch, nice. Uh, like the uncomfortable thing that uh, middle school students do to one another when they are uh, in the kindergarten phase of mind where they just can't stop touching each other. And then they're like, mister, he's touching me. Why is he always touching me? Uh, you know, pinching like that. that. That's a solid impression, Jeff. Um, that's really good, actually. <laughs> Also, I'm trying to remember the last time I've been pinched. That is such a little kid thing to do, to pinch somebody. Yes. Anyways. Um, so, yeah, not that type of pinch, Jeff. Um, this pinch is more in relation to needing help in a pinch. And it relates to a fascinating story um, that, we, that we looked at about emergency grants for college students who just need help in a pinch. All right, so let's go ahead and get into it. This comes to us by way of LA School Report, thanks to some reporting by Peter Sloan. And he reports on a new study commissioned by the Hexer Foundation and conducted by Sage Education, which points to significant gains in college persistence thanks to a student emergency grants program. 
Now, in order to boost college persistence for underserved New York City students who attend college away from home, the Heckscher Foundation and the Gertzner Philanthropies created a student emergency fund at six State University of New York campuses. The recipients of these emergency grants showed substantially higher achievement rates than the general campus populations. Of the nearly 2,000 students who received the grants since 2018, 94% were still enrolled in college or had successfully graduated or completed their program of study in the semester immediately following receipt of their award. This compares to just 76% nationally. In addition, 90% of grant recipients receiving an award in fall 2019 were re-enrolled in fall 2020, a rate that's 14% 14 percentage points higher than retention rates seen on the six State University of New York campuses as a whole and for full-time students nationally. Now, eight in 10 recipients noted that applying for the grant caused them to learn about other resources that they didn't even know about before. Now, grants were made on a rolling basis throughout the academic year and summer for up to a recommended maximum of $2,000. The idea was to help students respond to emergencies such as homelessness or threat of eviction, medical crises, medical crises, medical crises, natural disasters, domestic violence, theft, or loss of employment. Examples of eligible expenses included rent, utilities, clothing, furniture, medical bills, childcare, transportation, and replacement of stolen items needed for school. So Jeff, college students oftentimes need help in a pinch. Things happen that you weren't anticipating and that whole um, college barely making it, barely having enough money to get by, reality of so many college students, um, this grant program seemed to promote some or it seemed to boost some academic achievement and persistence for sure for students who didn't need some big like long-term financial help, but just needed help in a pinch. All right. So what are your thoughts about this, um, about this study? Yeah. So this is one of those stories, man. Well, and I feel like we periodically we get stories like this uh, that, that we dive into here on the show where I have two emotions simultaneously. On the one hand, I'm like, wow, it's great that somebody like did this study and surfaced some data that shows us the impact of this kind of program. And then also I'm like, why do we need a study to show, like, to show us the impact of this kind of program? Like, we don't need a study to be like, breathing air keeps you alive. Like, some things are are just kind of obvious, right? And I get that in the world of, you know, policy and academia and, you know, wanting to use resources, public resources responsibly and, you know, in this kind of space, it is valuable to have evidence to show this type of program is impactful. And also I'm like we are just sometimes we're just collectively dumb, dude. Honestly. Where where I'm like is this some great surprise that like when people struggle, right? We know students from low income backgrounds are struggling to meet the financial needs of college virtually by definition. And then on top of that, we know that because our society is deeply unequal and willfully uh, unequal and oppressive as a result of that, that these are the exact same students and families that are more likely to experience types of crisis uh, as you as you said, it kind of should be crises, right? Uh, even though 
it's crises. But anyways, right. uh, <laughs> you know, like we know these are the, the people who are going to face things like food insecurity, eviction, who are more likely to have, you know, a health crisis in the family or have a child care or some type of family member care burden fall upon them that they don't have the financial means to outsource to someone else or just handle without taking time off of school, that all of these kinds of things are more likely to happen to them. And what's the solution, or at least, you know, what's one really important uh, need that these students have uh, to be able to handle these things is money, right? So it's not at all surprising that when you take a group of people who need some money in order to keep their life stable so that they can therefore participate in and stay engaged in higher education, if you give them some money, particularly if it's at least enough to help, that they're more likely to stay engaged, right? And so right. in that sense, I'm like, thanks for telling us you know, the obvious. Um, and that, you know, I'm a little bit frustrated by with these, with yeah. these sorts of studies because we are just so resistant in this country to the idea that low-income folks should just get more resources in order to help meet their needs, and in particular, should get the money that they need to be able to afford the stuff that you need in order to remain engaged in your education. So I feel that, and then, Manuel, on the other hand, I'm like, okay, there, there's some interesting stuff here that uh, I think this, this study helps kind of substantiate. So one piece of that is um, the size of the grants. Now, I personally am like, give them the money. Why stop at $2,000? We should give right. $10,000 or $20,000 grants. But it's interesting to note that even a relatively small grant of up to $2,000, as uh, this study shows, can have this tremendously positive impact, right? And yep. we might think poverty is so big, you can't you know, overcome it without billions and billions of dollars, uh, which you know is partially true and we should tax rich people, hello. But um, even relatively tiny grants like this can go a long way towards preventing some of the uh, you know, gaps that we see in college persistence and college graduation across uh, lines of income and, and that sort of thing. So um, I'm happy, Manuel, and I'm like, damn it, how come only when it comes to like marginalized folks do we need studies that tell us the obvious stuff, okay? <laughs> like, we, can we just, move on from the obvious and start doing things that get to solutions. So anyways, that is my split mind. Um, I'm curious, Dr. Rustin, what, what say you on this topic? Yeah, that split mind, that is that is um, very on point for a story like this. Cause yes, this is like positive and something to be happy about, but also like, what the hell, isn't this obvious? And also why should this be a problem in the first place? When you look at what these emergency grants are for or what like some eligible expenses are, it mentioned medical bills, threat of eviction, transportation, like none of those things should even exist as a, a impediment for graduating from college. Like why should a full-time college student who's doing well, the, the, the grant you had to be at least a 2.0 GPA or above or something like that, um, why should anybody in that position be under threat of eviction in the first place? Why don't we have more protection so that they don't have to worry about getting kicked out of their apartment or campus dorm in the midst of trying to graduate from college? Medical bills, same thing. Like These are expenses that should not be a problem in the first place. So yes, it's great that this support is there for folks who need help in a pinch, but also it's just so frustrating seeing that these challenges are prohibiting people or stopping people from finishing college. Because you think about all the other students at all the other campuses that didn't have emergency grants or didn't apply for them or didn't know about it, who ended up not graduating college. And 
a person to have not graduated college because of their inability to keep up with medical bills is so criminal. Like that's just criminal. That should not exist in our society at all. A person not finishing their semester of school and getting their degree because they were under threat of eviction and they had to drop out of school because they had to pick up extra shifts to try to avoid becoming unhoused. Like that should not be an issue. Like that shouldn't exist at all. So yes, it's very great to see programs like this and see data here for for supporting more programs like this on more campuses like this study like you know yes it is obvious but it also will help um support those folks across across the nation who are working hard towards making this a reality on their school grounds being able to point to this study and show that it really does work but like yes this is something that i mean it's it it's just so frustrating. It's frustrating. And I feel for folks who never ended up finishing college because of their financial challenges that they face. And I'm sure there might even be people listening to this whose, you know, whose children go to school and they're interested in education issues and they're following along. And maybe they themselves didn't get that degree that they really wanted because they had to make sacrifices because of their financial uh, situation um, at the time. So it's just frustrating to see that and to know that. But, um, you know, shout out to the study for pointing out the obvious, but also helping um, lend some some uh, support for folks who are trying to do the same thing in their locale. And another interesting part about it is it did show that the way to apply for these grants, this online portal that they did, um, ended up helping students learn about other resources that other resources that they didn't even know about so it does help inform us in terms of like setting up systems that are are a lot easier to use and easier to access because i think a lot of folks um you know i know at our high school we struggle to like remind seniors like we have all these scholarship opportunities and you and here's how you apply but each one has different application requirements and it gets confusing and some students just like no matter how many times you tell them they never are able to like really tap into it and really engage with it so this study also showed having this online portal uh, really helped just like inform students of other opportunities and you know maybe that's something for for us at the maybe high school level to think about in terms of when we are encouraging students to apply for uh, for scholarships um helping with you know setting up some sort of easier way just easier way for them to access all the opportunities that are out there because it could definitely become overwhelming especially for a student who doesn't really have help from somebody um you know pointing out all the resources that are there so yeah yeah yeah, this is the kind of thing, Manuel, and I, if memory serves, I, I hope I'm not going to misstate this here, but we probably a couple of years ago, we talked about a somewhat similar type of program. I think that that was through the University of Michigan, if memory serves. I apologize if I'm if I'm getting this wrong, but it was we like- We did a, something similar, yes. Yeah, um, it, but uh, it had to do with like college uh, applications and, and applying for financial aid and like- getting people to access supports by default as opposed to having to opt in to right. getting them, right? And I'm like, yeah. so so this is a cool data set here, right? We get that like giving people these these grants up to $2,000 prevents people from, uh, from dropping out. I'm like, so why not? Like the colleges know. We know who the poor folks are in school. We know who's on financial aid. We know who's on a lot of financial aid. We know who qualifies for Pell Grants. We know, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not a mystery who these folks are. So why not have the default be like, hey, you qualify for $2,000. Like, here's your $2,000 check. Please don't drop out of school. Let us know if you need additional support services. You can access them here, here, and here, right? Like, right. Uh, you know, it makes me think of we... We just philosophically love in this country, Manuel, the, the, the myth of meritocracy, right? And the idea that like 
we can't make things too easy for people because it breeds laziness or something. And, you know, and the reality is like people need help. So why don't we just provide that help by default? And and here's how you know people need help, Manuel, because the rich kids on campus or the middle class and, and more upwardly mobile kids, when they need help, their parents just write them, a, you know, write them a check, right? Or say, oh, come stay with us for a while. Or you know what? You went to school far away and you live by your aunt's house. Just go live with your aunt, you know, or whatever it is, right? You have a support yeah. network that comes with money and resources to take care of your needs. And that is provided to them by default, not by needing to opt in with a bureaucratic application or that sort of thing. So um, anyways, I, I just think, you know, this is yet another sign that we know some of the very basic things that work that close equity gaps. And yet we still like to include little barriers in the system that prevent people from getting those resources by default, as opposed to having to take you know, actions. So hopefully that, that could be maybe like phase two of the study. Yeah, that, that would be, yes, hopefully. And then, you know, maybe those are all baby steps towards a world where you don't have to pay for college in the first place and mm -hmm. where everybody has, you know, universal access to health insurance and where folks aren't under threat of eviction because everybody is and has a right to housing and is in a comfortable spot. Baby steps, Jeff, baby mm -hmm. steps. Indeed. I guess, I guess, I don't know. All right, Jeff, we have another term for today, I believe, for today's do now. So what we got, what we got? We do indeed, uh, Manuel. The second term for today is shade. Shade. Hmm, I'm very familiar with shade. I assume you, of course, are talking about shade from the sun because us living in Southern California, there is quite a lot of sun. And although we had a lot of rain this year, it's been quite sunny for a while now. And I believe it hits... Like it's been in the low 70s lately and you need shade, Jeff, to protect yeah. yourself from, you know, the sun and all that stuff. So, yeah, let's talk about UV rays. Yeah. So, uh, Manuel, I would just like to point out you might be in Los Angeles where it's 70 degrees right now. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I, and I just did bring up my weather app. I don't know if it's going to really show on camera, but that is a five. That is a single digit five. <laughs> it's five degrees here right Where's now. Where's the other digit, Jeff? Uh, Where's well, the other I, digit, Jeff? Yeah, there ain't no other digit, man. At least there's not a negative in front of the number. Wow. Because uh, it, it was when I woke up today. Um, but I will say there's not a single person in the entire state of Minnesota who's looking for shade right now <laughs> <laughs> at all. Uh, so with that in mind... Uh, we are we are talking about uh, the kind of shade that one party might throw or cast upon another party when that party is doing some foolish nonsense. Uh, so, so uh, in this particular case, Manuel, we're talking about the shade that one branch of government, of the U.S. federal government, might cast upon another branch of the U.S. government. In this specific case, we're talking about the Government Accountability Office throwing shade at Miguel Cardona's mm. U.S. Department of Education. Now, it's a little bit overblown uh, <laughs> and clickbaity. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, shade has been thrown and uh, lines have been drawn, Manuel. So uh, let's let's get into this here. Uh, this story comes to us uh, also out of LA School Report. Shout out to them today for uh, some great reporting. Um, and this is by uh, Mariana Murdoch. 
And with the nation's schools facing acute teacher shortages, the GAO, or Government Accountability Office, criticized the U.S. Department of Ed's strategy for not adequately addressing the crisis and guiding states on how to attract and retain more educators. The GAO report, this came out back in December, stated that the Department of Education's plans for addressing teacher shortages do not have all the elements GAO previously has determined as necessary for successful strategies. While the USDOE has taken important steps to develop a comprehensive strategy to address teacher shortages, it has not yet clearly communicated timeframes, milestones, or performance measures to gauge results of their efforts." End quote. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic laid bare teachers' discontent with aspects of their jobs, including a lack of support for their safety and value as professionals, and an increasingly disrespectful and demanding workplace culture and exacerbated teacher shortages nationwide, the GAO stated. Pulling data from focus groups helped uh, throughout the pandemic. Now, the GAO analysis included recommendations for a few uh, important buckets of things around recruiting, which included high costs, uh, addressing high costs of becoming a teacher and differing uh, the kind of myriad requirements uh, that differ by state for state licensure, as well as retention challenges, um, which really speak to the lack of support for current teachers, including school workplace cultures and teacher compensation. So, Manuel, um, we got uh, straight beef happening in the U.S. Uh, government. Um, you know, Joe Biden's left hand is uh, swinging at the right hand. <laughs> uh, it seems, I guess that's not true because the GAO, uh, I, you know, is created by Congress. So, so we got Capitol Hill swinging at the White House. Uh, Manuel, what is going on here? Shade, Jeff. Shade. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, the report makes a lot of sense, man. Makes a lot of sense. When you see the actual plan that was laid out by the U.S. Department of Education for addressing the teacher shortage, it is a whole lot of stuff that, um, you know, kind of comes off as fluff at this point in the sense that, like, I think it's highly agreeable stuff and there aren't any timelines or measures to gauge progress in any of these areas. So it's a lot of saying the right thing because everybody agrees to it. And I, a few weeks ago, went to a, I guess it was a summit. I don't know. Uh, it wasn't a conference, but it was like a gathering of teachers um, sponsored by the college football playoff. I think it was called the Extra Yard for Teachers or something. It was supposed to be like this big thing for teachers across the Los Angeles area that was promoted by the College Football Playoff Foundation in connection with the college football playoff game, which was happening out here in Southern California. And I and Miguel Cardona happened to be there and, and he was on stage and he was speaking and, and you know, he was being asked about teacher, um, you know, workplace conditions and about teacher compensation and all these things. And it was just a lot of fluff coming out. You know, uh, one question was, you know, how much should teachers be earning? And he said, I believe six figures, six figures. And the audience was applauding and everybody was clapping at the secretary of education saying teachers should be earning six, figure, six figures. And, um, you know, he also said, you know, help is on the way for workplace conditions. Help is on the way. And it was all this applause and stuff. And it was like, yeah, I don't think help is on the way, man. I don't think we're going to be looking at six figures anytime soon nationally, for sure. It's like saying the right thing. I think everybody can agree that teachers should be paid more, that we have to do focus more on retention and we have to address some of the systemic challenges in the teaching profession. It's really easy to say that stuff. And it sounds like the, the GAO is calling out the Department of Ed for 
just saying the stuff and not really showing a whole lot of of progress on this front, especially guidance for states to to like move in these air in these in this direction. Uh, of course, the you know federal government has you know not a whole lot of of say in what actually happens in education on the ground in in states, and you know in, in a lot of ways it could function as a, a bully pulpit sort of situation of what should be happening. Um, but definitely you know especially you know states like California and other states that aren't here trying to destroy public education as we know it. Um, could really benefit from more specific guidance and um, a little more, a little more uh, pressure coming from the feds to really address our our teacher shortage and really address this just the ongoing systemic challenges in the profession uh, for sure. So yeah, it sounded like the the GAO was was pretty much on point with this report here, and I just. I, I don't know, man. I'm at, I'm at a place now where it just sounds like everybody, every group, every foundation, every, 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 everything is saying like, yeah, we got to do more. We got to do more. We got to diversify the teacher force. We got to support. We got to, you know, do more to recruit and do all these things. But it's like, I, I don't see any kind of a concrete national action happening that like we could really latch on to. It's just a whole lot of folks saying the right thing. And I think folks believe it. Like, I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, Miguel Cardona doesn't believe these things. He believes it, but um, we got to get past the the talking and we got to get past the like, oh, we need diverse teachers. Yes, we know that. Anybody who denies that at this point is just, they don't give a shit anyways. They don't care anyways. So yeah, we got to get past that. And shout out to the GAO for saying like, yo, we need, we need some specifics here. We need more. We need more than just words, more than just fluff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I think, Manuel, it's important to point out in this, in the analysis of this story, uh, what exactly the GAO is, right? So the Government Accountability Office is essentially a, like, internal policy watchdog, right, that is, um, in theory, is a nonpartisan or bipartisan, I guess, Um organization that is funded by the government that is who is charged with sort of analyzing policy ideas and giving um, objective assessment of them to policymakers, right, to Congress, to the White House, to say, like, what are the likely impacts of this policy? How likely is it to be successful? What are the financial impacts of it, right, um, to allow us to be empowered with uh, with you know, hopefully not just like right wing nutty information about what a potential policy should mean or could mean or how successful it will be or not. Those sorts of things. So it's doing its job, one, by assessing, you know, policy proposals from the U.S. Department of Ed. So the, the clickbaity nature of like, oh, one branch of government talking about another is kind of like, well, this is what they do. Right. Um, and on the other hand, it is sad to note that like an assessment of a U.S. Department of Education policy around addressing the teacher shortage would have the kinds of holes in it that the GL report is noting, right? Because the reality is, at least on the ground, every educator I am talking to feels like this is among the most acute challenges and crises that we face in our profession right now. Yeah. In fact, um, good uh, friend of the show and former AOTA show guest, uh, Larry Ferlazzo, uh, just tweeted the other day, man, well, um, you know, he put up a tweet saying like, you know, what's to him, one of the most important crises in our profession that doesn't get talked about and people outside the profession might not know about is the lack of substitute teachers. And I was like, amen to that brother. Like that is 
spot on. And it's something that gets no attention in the media, but has a deeply coercive effect inside the profession and is exacerbating the, um, the outward symptom that we see, which is like, oh, vacancies can't be filled or people are resigning and leaving the profession and that sort of thing. So, um, and it's connected to the fact that we have a teacher shortage because in many cases people enter the teaching profession or at least one of the gateways to entering the teaching profession is people start as substitutes and then get hired full-time and that sort of thing so um if we don't have substitutes we are that is, that is a canary in the mine shaft uh around you know the the long-term prospects for the profession and you know all the signs are signaling us that like we have to do something about this it is a deep, deep issue right now. And, you know, we're not seeing the type of urgent policy response at a federal level, or frankly, even in many cases at the state or local level, that would suggest that this is as big of a crisis as it, as it actually is. We're, we're seeing the lip service, we're seeing the rhetoric, we're not seeing, Manuel, actual policy, <clears throat> excuse me, that says six-figure salaries for educators, that says we're going to intentionally overstaff our schools that work in the you know, most acutely marginalized parts of society because we know that we tend to have higher turnover there and high, more absences and more burnout from people having to do coverages and that sort of thing. We're gonna speed up and enhance the attractiveness of the teacher education pipeline. We're gonna get rid of this mishmash of licensing, credentialing uh, frameworks across our 50 states that federalism, federalism is a terrible model for a profession like, like teaching so that it's not extremely cumbersome or you know, deeply expensive for teachers to move from one state to another state um, and have to you know, spend thousands and thousands of dollars getting re-credentialed um, in another state. You know, things like this, right? That we can argue about the effectiveness of those ideas, but these are like things that could actually make a difference. I don't think we're seeing those kinds of things right now at any level of government, you know, at, at least at any scale. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. You are correct. Um, maybe the good news here is that thanks to this report, by the time we have another full episode, Jeff, because, you know, it's been a minute. We got a lot of uh, disruptions happening right now. So it takes a while between full episodes right now. Maybe the next time we have one of these do nows, one of the headlines will be like, solved it. Hella teachers now. Plenty of teachers. Teacher surplus, actually. So many teachers. What's best, two teachers per classroom or three? Maybe we'll get there, Jeff, maybe. One can hope, all right? But we do have one super dope teacher in the building who's about to join us for our seminar segment to really unpack what it means to be a highly qualified, quality, super dope teacher in this day and age with all of these challenges that we are immersed in at this time. So up next, our seminar with Jason Torres Ronhell. California Teacher of the Year. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All the Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All the Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. 
There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch. Okay, all you gotta do is go to aotashow.com slash support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar and thanks so much for joining us. We have with us today an incredible guest, uh, someone who uh, Manuel and I um, met many years ago and are super excited to have here today on All the Above for the very first time. Um, he is an incredible award-winning educator, high school English teacher um, here in Los Angeles, Jason Torres Rangel. Jason, welcome to All the Above. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Good to see you guys. Yeah, yeah. It's great, it's great to have you. Uh, folks, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Uh, Jason Torres Rangel has taught for 19 years in the Los Angeles Unified School District. He currently teaches 11th grade English and AP English language at Roosevelt High School in Boyle Heights. Shout out to Roosevelt. Um, over the course of his career, Jason has served as a lead teacher. He's also been the Associate Director of English Language Arts for Smarter Balanced, as well as a Senior Research Associate at the National Writing Project. In 2015, Jason was selected as a United Way Inspirational Teacher for his outstanding work in the classroom. Jason earned his bachelor's in English from Pomona College, his master's at Harvard University's teacher education program, where, uh, of course, we had the great fortune of meeting him. And as a lifelong learner who comes from a family of educators, uh, during the pandemic, Jason got a second master's, this time in English literature at Cal State LA, and he is currently getting his PhD in urban education at the Claremont Graduate University. In 2022, Jason was selected as a Los Angeles Unified and Los Angeles County Teacher of the Year and was recently nominated by State Superintendent of Education Tony Thurmond as California State Teacher of the Year and California's nominee for the National Teacher of the Year competition. Jason lives in El Sereno here in Los Angeles with his partner and their dog, Toby. Welcome again, Jason, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, teacher of the year dopeness, California dopeness in the building. Thank you, Jason, so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be here on All the Above with us to discuss good teaching. And right now in the uh, coming through the pandemic, the focus seems to continue to be on learning loss and test scores and quote unquote catching students back up. And one thing that gets lost in these conversations about extended learning or tutoring or test prep or accountability is what good teaching that supports student learning actually looks like in this moment. So as a California teacher of the year, and as a teacher who's taught through one of the most tumultuous periods of modern education, what would you say good quality teaching looks like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think great teaching uh, today looks a lot like the way great teaching has always looked. Um, in certain ways, it's grounded in things like love, 
Uh, it's grounded in relationships. Um, it's grounded in a sense of authenticity. Um, and But I think those things ring even more true for students now maybe than they did um, in the past, now that we're back in person. You know, I, I, um, I teach juniors and high school juniors. And on the first day that we came back from remote learning, I did like a kind of Q&A and asked folks, what, were you ex- what are you excited about for your junior year? And in years past, you know, students say things like, you know, getting ready for college or, um, you know, kind of more academic language. And, and, and these like 15, 16 year olds were saying, I'm excited to make, make friends. And I want friends. And I was like, that it was so sweet. Um, and also, I think so indicative of, you know, kind of need to kind of return to sort of the, the, the basic ingredients of what makes a real, a real healthy classroom. Um, and in that way, I think students now more than ever appreciate when their teachers are, are authentic and real with them. Um, you know, students are always curious about their teachers. You know, what, what car do you drive? Do you have pets? Are you married? <laughs> do you have kids? And, um, you know, what kind of music do you listen to? What do you do on the weekends? And I think, like, it's really special now for teachers to lean on those kinds of things even more because um, that kind of opens this door to have students share back with you and then with each other. Um, I also think there's a space for, for informality. Um, and, you know, sometimes we get, you know, especially in this rhetoric of like, oh my gosh, there's this so-called learning loss and, and kids are so supposedly behind that there's this rush, especially in like, you know, so-called underperforming schools to kind of like ramp up, you know, get kids ready for the big assessments. And, um, we can kind of lose, lose sight of, um, of just being normal with each other and being um, very approachable, uh, being chill, as the students would say. Um, you know, in, in years past, I think this is my 19th year, right? And in years past, I think when I would see a student come in who I hadn't seen for a bit, I might instantly start to kind of check up, check up with them on their academics. Okay, so you're missing this, you're missing this. Let's work on a plan to get that in. And now I think I'm much more about like pausing taking a chance to say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. We've missed you. Well, what have you been up to? You know, and, um, and, and leaving it at that for a bit, right? And um, I think kids really respond to that because they kind of come into the classroom kind of reticent to, to let their guard down. Um, so, uh, you know, those ingredients along with things that have always, have always worked and always been there like, I think it's real helpful, especially with older kids, to you want to include some element of surprise. You want to surprise them, right? And my my first year, I taught uh, all seniors. They gave me like a full full load of seniors, and I felt that the students, you know, I kind of asked them about what their experience was um, in English, and and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them had become kind of jaded to like you know the words like analysis uh essay and so i was like oh i gotta like i gotta like reset their understanding of of what english can be and what we do in 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 english and really in school um so i was like what's a word that they probably haven't really dealt with a lot that's going to be like new to them and have that novelty and so i was like oh i I came up with the word subtext 
And I was like, in English, we study subtext. And they were like, I don't know what that is. But they were like curious, right? And um, so that was like a way in and then like a way into kind of like tap into their natural kind of sense of wonder, um, questioning, wanting to discover. Um, so yeah, I think, I think things that always were kind of always there um, that we knew make good teaching are now even more ever present there for us. Yeah, Jason, I really appreciate that um, kind of example you gave. And I think it speaks to where I'm going to go with this this next question, which is, I think, perhaps one of the most uh, kind of misunderstood elements of our profession is just how complex uh, the work of teaching is and, and the range of skills and competencies that are, that are really needed in order to um, not only be minimally effective, but, but to be particularly good and, and impactful. Um, in this work. And, you know, as someone who is, you know, being recognized as a state teacher of the year, I wonder if you could share some insights with us around what you think it takes uh, in order for teachers to be able to be um, effective in the role consistently. And connected to that, what kinds of things should we be thinking about, uh, you know, maybe at the administrative level or policy level in order to set up the conditions for success for teachers to be consistently effective in their role? Yeah, that's a big one. Um, I'm glad you said that because, you know, as someone who definitely like is a student's first person, I'm also teacher first. And, you know, those things are not mutually exclusive to me. And, you know, if, if we don't have teachers that are energized, are inspired, are engaged, um, then you know that that trickles down to the students, and so I, it's funny. I just gave a speech um, talking about how we must protect teachers um, and this idea of protection. And teachers are a precious resource. Um, we got to think of teachers as like we're like clean water or clean air, um, and these resources are finite, uh, but they 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 need active cultivation um, and work on our part. Um, and so the one thing that I think that really helps with um, helping protect teachers, and, and especially in the early years, but really throughout their career, is the thing that we always say we don't have enough of an education. The first thing is money, but the, the thing that's always named is time. And, you know, time is another finite, precious resource in education. And there's never enough time in the day to do all the things, you know, that we need to do. But I think really healthy school environments um, are smart about how they create protected time for teachers. And so uh, my current school, what's, what's really great is um, Roosevelt, for teachers who are brand new to the profession, um, Roosevelt gives teachers not one, but two conference periods, two prep periods every day um, so they can plan, so they can observe other teachers, um, and I just think that that's so incredible. Um, and, you know, the rest of the staff, we kind of agreed to take just slightly larger class sizes. I mean, it's not just maybe a student or two. Um, it didn't have that big of an effect. And, um, you know, things like that, that really think about how we use our time in the school day um, to create these protective spaces for teachers to um, be reflective about their craft, to meet with others. Uh, I think the other piece is that, you know, you learn early on 
that you can't do this job in isolation. You can't do this job within the four walls of your classroom, but it's very easy to get trapped in those four walls. Um, you know, teaching is exhausting. Uh, it takes everything, you know, your, your blood, sweat, and tears, and um, you can easily stay in those walls prepping for the next lesson, grading papers, answering emails. And so there needs to be um, really supportive coaches that are there for teachers that can kind of poke their heads indoors and encourage teachers to come out that can go in and, and, um, and, and be a, a support for teachers. It's really important that those coaches are not evaluatory in any way, right? Um, you know, teachers, I think we're all kind of protective of our practice and um, it's real important to create a sense of trust with, with new teachers. And so it's important that coaches establish a relationship that says, I'm not here to evaluate you. I'm here to help you grow. I'm here to listen to you. Um, I'm here to provide a little bit of feedback um, if you want it, um, the kind of feedback that you want. Uh, I had some really great coaches in my you know, early years or throughout my teaching, and I have one now um, who is so great. And um, I think it's important that schools and districts really keep those resources available for those positions, because um, I think a good coach can go a long way in, um, in helping a teacher be sustained in the work. Um, I would also say that beyond the school site, it's really important for teachers to maintain and establish relationships with folks beyond their school site. Um, and in my maybe third year of teaching, I got involved with the UCLA Writing Project, which is a kind of networked improvement community. And then I eventually joined the National Writing Project. And joining this kind of larger group of teachers of writing from all over the country really helped invigorate my own understanding of what English can be. Um, it helped me help open my eyes beyond the scope of my local context. And that was so, it was inspiring. Um, I felt energized by that. And uh, I think it's real important that we connect teachers with those kinds of you know, networked improvement communities that are beyond um, the school site. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, teaching, especially teaching in, in areas that are underserved, under-resourced, um, it's easy for folks to become perhaps cynical or just kind of like, my gosh, how can we do this work when, you know, there's all these other pressures happening, uh, you know, budget cuts, layoffs, uh, teacher shortages. And if you're not connected to larger activist organizations, then you can feel like you're just kind of a, a cog in a machine that you have no effect on. But I also, like early in my career, became connected with um, our union, our teachers union, which has really taken on this grassroots model um, of organizing and thinking about, you know, uh, educational improvement. And I, that has sustained me and made me feel like I'm having an impact on things that sometimes I feel like I'm powerless over. Um, and I've seen that same, that same kind of impact happen for other teachers um, who join our union and, and feel like, wow, at times when I feel like I might be just functioning within my four walls, I, I also know that I'm connected to something greater and are part of this larger, these large, can be part of these larger systems of impact. Yeah, I love that. I, I really appreciate in your answer the amount of 
love and care that you've communicated about the teaching profession and how you speak about the profession in, in such a caring way. And it's in such stark contrast to what we're seeing um, nationally with attacks on teachers and attacks on curriculum. And I think back to our days way, way back when, when we were fledgling little teachers um, and how how much has changed in our profession since then? Like back then and when we were at, at Hugsy at, at Harvard, I, I don't think I could have really envisioned the types of attacks on teachers that we're seeing um, when in the way that teachers have been dragged into um, the political divide. So in in thinking about how teachers and, and curriculum has been attacked, uh, particularly anything that's inclusive of queer voices or anything that, that even merely mentions Jim Crow, like when thinking about the CRT hysteria and these, the, these uh, accusations of, of woke teachers indoctrinating students, um, how have you found that to to affect you, and especially for teachers who are really out, who are out there really worried about becoming the target of right wing attacks and 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 being put on blast in, in these um, Facebook groups and, and what have you? Like, what's your message to those teachers? Like, what helps you stay true to your calling and true to your purpose in in the face of these ongoing attacks on on really who we are and, and what our profession is about? Yeah, for sure. That's a great, it's a great point, an issue that you guys bring up. Um, I think I go back to this idea of, you know, teachers have to be connected to other, other teachers and we have to form, you know, networks of support um, for each other to um, come together and, you know, talk about how we can strategize um, to support one another if there's someone who's being singled out you know, how can we gather a greater amount of support for that person? Um, you know, if there's some kind of, uh, you know, professional work environment that is not supportive, how can we use sort of the collective pressure from a collective group, whether it be a union or a group like, you know, a network improvement community, like a writing project, how can we kind of help uh, a larger community inform that local community um, that, you know, maybe that they don't have the entire, you know, the entire picture of what this teacher is, is doing. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes too, like um, there's, there's details there that we need to inquire about. And maybe the person who's kind of, and it's always a small group. It's never a large group. It's always a small group of very vocal individuals, maybe one individual who is, might be really going after a certain teacher um, or curriculum. You know, kind of inquiring with them and getting authentic with them and, and approaching them in person one-on-one -on -one and saying, you know, let me find out more about why this bothers you. What exactly are you, are you upset about? And oftentimes they're upset about things that aren't actually going on, upset about things that aren't actually true. Um, well, aren't you guys teaching this, this, and this? No, we're actually not. You know, are, are, is it, aren't you trying to indoctrinate? No, that's actually, we're actually trying to do the opposite. We're trying to create critical thinkers. Uh, free thinking, free thinking, uh, you know, agents in our democracy. Um, but I, I do go back to the idea of um, making sure that those folks are connected with someone outside the four walls of their classroom, that it's too easy to get trapped um, within the, the space of your classroom and feel isolated and feel like you are in this on your own and, and nothing could be further from the truth. And now, especially with like social media groups, um, teachers can get connected with folks who are not in their local context and they can kind of feed, you know, 
ask the brain trust for advice and input. Um, and so I'm a part of certain spaces online that uh, folks I've never met in person, but who we kind of like come together and support folks when they have those kind of interactions with someone and they're like, Hey, I'm having this issue. You know, what advice do you have? What kind of recourse do you recommend? Um, and so just that idea of reaching out and, and staying connected um, with others, I think is, uh, is real key in, in that, in that space. Yeah, Jason, we exist uh, not only in a world of sort of manufactured crisis in, in terms of some of the kind of right-wing um, boogeyman of CRT and wokeism uh, that, that exists in the national discourse about our profession, but also a very real crisis, uh, in particular in the form of teacher shortages. Mm -hmm. And uh, nationally, this is a huge issue. Certainly, there are disproportionate impacts um, that tend to be concentrated in more rural or more low-income urban um, areas, especially um, that are having the effects of things like, you know, long-term vacancies, so students are not being uh, taught by, you know, credentialed teachers, um, things like uh, substitute teacher shortages and teachers having to take on, you know, coverages uh, multiple times a week, uh, many times a month that interfere with some of that time that you spoke so eloquently about um, earlier. Uh, so as someone who has now been uh, sort of duly uh, elected uh, or selected uh, as a representative for uh, the teaching profession and, and in some ways for education more broadly, uh, I'm wondering what your sort of pitch is to uh, perhaps the next generation of, of teachers and educators out there who might be considering the profession and what are some of the things you think we should be doing in order to make the teaching profession more uh, enticing and more sustainable for folks? Yeah, for sure. I think it's funny, anytime, even before the teacher shortage, whenever I would meet someone who I thought kind of had a, a joyful outlook of the world, who you know was a people person, who liked helping others, who had a kind of social justice vision, for the world, I was like, oh my gosh, you should be a teacher. Like, we always need good teachers. Um, and it was, it's funny, for my, my own self, it was uh, one of my college mentors who kind of gave me that little nudge. And, you know, sometimes it's someone who sees something in you that you might not yet see um, that kind of nudges you and gives you that, that green light to sort of allow you to consider the profession. Um, you know, we all went through school we all went through school, and so um, we know kind of we have unexperience of what schools can be like. Um, and so I always like to kind of tap into that and help folks remember that, like, look, you can be that um, you know anchor, that beacon of support for a young person. They say that you know young folks, if they can have just one meaningful interaction with an adult a day at school, it can be life changing for them. And you know you can be that adult and. Um, you know, the job is never different. It's, uh, it's never boring. You know, every class period, even if you're teaching, quote unquote, the same content, it could be wildly different from one period to the next. And, you know, 19 years later, the students still surprise me with their insights, with their questions. I'm always like still figuring it out. I was talking with my, my teacher neighbor next door. Uh, I, he's like 30 years in and he's like, I, I, we were talking about this. He's like, what keeps me here is that I, I still haven't figured it out. 
And every day I'm, I'm still getting better. And um, in a very invigorating way, very sort of rejuvenating way. Um, so, you know, if you're a lover of learning, love of like continual improvement, like this is a great, a great profession. Um, and I think there's also a really great professional community that you get to be a part of. Um, you have your coworkers are unlike coworkers you might have at a more traditional office job. You know, your, your best friends and your coworkers, um, trying to figure out how to do this work better. Um, and you know, my teacher, my teacher family is my work family is my, you know, chosen family. And those relationships are lifelong. And, um, you know, that, that happens because of the magic of the classroom of the school environment. In terms of, you know, kind of creating uh, incentives for new teachers, you know, Paul at the policy level, um, there's some real exciting things happening right now. So state of California is just announced the Golden State Teacher Grant for new teachers, which gives uh, new teachers $20,000 to pay for a new teaching credential. Um, they're offering also kind of bonuses for teachers who get, who are trying to be national board certified. Um, and if you teach in a, in a high need school, a, another incentive is, is there as well. So I think we're already kind of like seeing um, moves to, to shift and make teaching more sustainable for folks. The reality is that cost of living is rapidly increasing all across the country and um, teacher pay has not kept pace with that. And, and so, you know, when in a lot of the national surveys asking folks why they've left or are considering leaving the teaching profession, number one is always pay. And that's always, it's so interesting because you ask a teacher why they got, in, you know, into the job, no one ever says the pay. And yet, and yet the reality of cost of living increases means that Folks are having to make these choices because they're saying, I can't, um, you know, provide for, I have a family I'm trying to make ends meet and I have to work multiple jobs in, you know, and, and this work is already exhausting. Um, and so how can we one raise teacher pay across the board in big ways, I think is a big one. Um, and, and I go back to that idea of how can we create spaces for teachers to have more time to be reflective within the school day, within the work day. Um, and so is it an extra conference period? Is it giving them uh, money for days where they can take a release day or a day off uh, and work with their teacher team? They can meet off campus um, and they can get together and get into, delve into inquiry. Um, my last school is able to do that really well. My current school is, is doing that even in, amidst a, a sub-crisis. And I think that work helps the profession be sustaining and rejuvenating for folks new and young. Um, but if we're, if we're dreaming big, like what if every Friday or every other Friday, teachers had a sort of free day to be able to do with it as they please. They could use it for professional learning. They could use it to call parents. They could use it to engage in their own kind of mental health practices. Um, they can use it to forward their own professional development. Um, and, you know, so really thinking about creative ways that we can help teachers get more of that, that finite resource of time, uh, which we always say we never have enough of. Yeah. Jason, just a quick note. Uh, we're always dreaming big here on, uh, on all nice. the above. So, so thank <laughs> you for going there with us and uh, love those ideas. 
um, all of which uh, I hope there's some policymakers out there tuning in to today's episode uh, because what a, what, what a novel and revolutionary idea to give teachers the time they need to be effective uh, at the very important work they have to do. So um, much appreciated for that. And uh, Manuel has our, our final question for you today. Yeah, yeah. I love that Friday vision. I love that Friday vision, by the way. Um, so yeah, you were named in October one of five California Teachers of the Year, and you were nominated for the 2023 National Teacher of the Year. So big props to you. Shout out to you. Definitely, definitely super proud, especially as as uh, someone who knew you way back when you were first getting your teacher credentials. So, so proud of you and your achievements and your accomplishments. And we're hoping you can maybe share a little bit with our audience um, a little bit about what your experience has been since being named a, a teacher of the year and especially any aspects of of what it means to be a state teacher of the year that like folks maybe don't really realize or know about. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a really humbling, wild, fun process. Um, it first started when I found out that I was nominated to be a district teacher of the year. Um, and it kind of, you get this mysterious email that someone nominated you. Um, you know, it's like back in elementary school and you get a Valentine in your bag and you're not sure who <laughs> sent it. Um, so I was like asking folks, I was like, did you nominate me? Did you nominate, nominate me? And, uh, I found out it was a student, a current student of mine and her mom who put my name in the hat. And uh, you have the choice to kind of decide if you want to allow your name to be put in the hat. Um, and, and knowing that, like, I was so moved by that. I was like, of course, like, I'm in. Um, and then next thing I know, I'm, you know, it's LA Unified Teacher of the Year. And then um, LA, the districts communicate with the county. The county picks teachers of the year, and then the county communicates with the state, all the counties, um, and then states communicate with national. So it's this whole, this whole process. Um, but what's been really cool is, is I realized that this is another sort of way for teachers to build community with each other. And it's essentially a networked improvement community of educators who get together and share good ideas. So when they get us together, it's not just like, you know, here's an award. It's let's have like a little mini conference and talk about what are your best practices for X, Y, and Z. Um, and so that's been really cool. And I'm like, oh, I get it. This is like almost more professional development, really. Um, and with also this piece of, you know, you can also be this kind of um, symbol for what the profession is um, and the work that all teachers do and helping everyone kind of realize um, how hard teachers work, how much love we put into it every day, you know, the joy that we, that we put into it. Um, so that's been really, really special. And the, some of the coolest parts have been folks who I haven't talked to within a long time, old college friends reaching out. Um, and, you know, my own parents are teachers and my mom was LA Unified Teacher of the Year back in the day. And so it's been real, like, real special to share this with them um and, and and have them there you know throughout this journey so um you know they they take us we get invited to like sporting events um i fired a cannon at the opening of a football game i i, I mean like things that i did, had no, no clue um, about so that's been pretty special um and uh in in the spring, um, they are going to take all 50 of the state teachers of the year, um, the national nominees, to the White House 
we're going to get to meet the president. Um, and they have some, some activities planned for us there as well. Well, Jason, um, I will just conclude our, our time together today by saying um, we've had a, a couple of other State Teachers of the Year uh, on All the Above in the past and uh, the 2022 uh, National Teacher of the Year on the show. So, you know, I, I don't want to be so bold as to make any predictions here, but I just want to say you're, <laughs> you're keeping uh, good company as a guest here on All the Above. And awesome. uh, we... Manuel and I are very certainly uh, pulling for you uh, to uh, to continue uh, to be recognized for your for your great work um, amongst the state teachers of the year. Uh, so thanks so much uh, for joining us today, Jason. It's really just a uh, great to see you again. Great to have you on the show here and, and chop it up and some of these important questions. So thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. It was a huge pleasure. It's great to see you. Have me back anytime. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us, but stick around. Next up is our Class Dismissed. All right, folks, it is now that time in the episode where we like to pause for a minute and give some flowers, some shout outs, some recognition to people out there in the broader world of education just doing great things. That's right, it's our class dismissed and uh manuel what you got from class dismissed today yeah man we're going to shout out some students um many hundreds of students actually here locally in california now of course a lot of folks out there who don't live in california think california is this you know liberal paradise and it's everybody is is super progressive super left this and that and you know of course some folks that sounds like a nightmare uh but in any case yeah california ain't that so yes we do have locally uh some districts that have banned critical race theory. And this story here, we wanna shout out some students in one nearby district uh, in Temecula, wine country. Well, not the wine country that everybody knows about, but you know, good wine down there in Temecula. Um, but some students who staged a, a, a massive protest in response to their school board banning critical race theory. So shout out to Allison Vergara uh, for writing about this. We will drop the link below this episode, but she wrote that Temecula students were sending a message to adults in their school district recently um, that they will not be silenced. Hundreds of students from three high schools, Temecula Valley, Great Oak, and Chaparral, walked out of classrooms on January 13th to protest a school board resolution that bans the teaching of critical race theory in the Temecula Valley Unified School District. Now. 200 or so students started leaving campus at 10.30 a.m. and they headed to a local park, aptly named Ronald Reagan Sports Park. Um, but yeah, they staged a rally and um, in protest of this ban on critical race theory here in California. And we wanna shout out the students for speaking up to this issue. And we also wanna remind folks that just cause we're in California doesn't mean it's all sweet everywhere. There are definitely some um, really rampant attacks on our curriculum and rampant attacks on um, what we do in this profession um, throughout California coming from the right wing and these school board members trying to ban critical race theory. Um, these students were letting them know, yeah, we're not with that. Students showed up with signs saying, uh, listen to student voices, stop whitewashing history, all history needs to be taught. Just uh, great stuff from the youth. And, um, you know, again, critical race theory, this is not this controversial thing that it's, that it's made out to be. Students and parents want to see themselves in the curriculum. Students and parents want to learn uh, diverse perspectives of, of various groups and communities in the United States, all right? So shout out to these students for making their voices heard. 
we see y'all. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Manuel. I will fully co-sign on that. And I will also say it is amazing the, the wisdom that young people can show um, in a moment like this. These are young high school students, and they see what's going on, right? They yeah. had signs talking about fight fascism and stuff, right? Like They understand the game that is being played here with them and their education and their future, right? And the, the silencing uh, of critical information uh, and any type of critical analysis of U.S. history that is being imposed upon them by these right-wing school board members, right? And they understand the danger uh, of that historically by using terms like fascism. This is not hyperbole, right? Like this, this is the stuff that we read about in the history books that that we should see the red lights going off about, right? And they recognize this um, and are doing what they can to uh, push back against it and speak out against it. And so I just deeply applaud that. I'm also sure that there are parents or other educators who are giving them guidance and supporting them on this. And uh, shout out to those folks as well, because uh, young people need encouragement and support in this kind of thing. And, you know, uh, in, in this really unfortunate situation in which they find themselves, uh, it's a beautiful thing to see them resisting and, and pushing back. So props to you, high school students of the Temecula Valley Unified School District. Um, great, great work. Great work. Absolutely. Folks, uh, oh, go yeah, ahead. My folks. bad. No, you got it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll practice and get that right next time, everybody. Uh, folks, thanks so much for joining us today uh, here on All the Above. We always love to uh, have you join us for these wonderful discussions, and we want to keep it going with you. So uh, where do you find us? Go to our website, which is aotashow.com. That's aotashow.com. There you can find links to the current episodes. You can find us on all platforms. We're on YouTube. You can listen to the podcast version on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app that you, are, that you are into. And all we ask of you is please like, subscribe, and share uh, with your network. Help us spread the word about all of the above. Lastly, on our website, you'll find a little tab at the top that says support. So it's aotashow.com slash support. There you can get your AOTA Show merch. You can get your flyest Teach the Truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth t-shirt uh, to represent like the young people out in Temecula. Um, and you can sign up to become a subscriber um, on our anchor page as well. So thanks so much, folks. Appreciate you. We'll see you next time. Yep.